So whenever I hear a 20-something say to me, oh, I want balance, that indicates to me they're not in the right career space. Because quite frankly, I'm a workaholic because I love what I do. And it doesn't feel like I'm out of balance. What's up, gang? We are back with more Future Proof. Thanks for listening. No, really, I mean that. Thanks. Uh, I, I wouldn't be doing this each week if nobody was listening. So I appreciate you tuning in or subscribing or downloading, just in general, listening. I'm biased, sure, but but I think these conversations are important. And, and I'm glad that you're here taking part in these discussions. So thank you and welcome to episode 74 of Future Proof. As always, I am your host, Bill Sheridan. And this show, this is a good one, both in terms of topic, which is important, and our guest, who's a rock star. So topic first, this week, we're talking about talent, recruitment and retention specifically. This is huge. Pretty much every survey under the sun identifies recruitment and retention as one of the top issues facing accounting and finance organizations today. Everybody is struggling with this, and and everyone has an idea about how to solve it. Uh, They usually sound a little bit like this. This comes from an article from Poe Group Advisors titled Eight Basics for Recruitment and Retention. Their solutions sound like a lot of solutions being put forward throughout the profession these days. Communicate, be a, a role model, make your expectations clear, offer a safe working environment, provide a clear career path, build leaders, all great advice, and, and we hear the stuff over and over again, and yet talent continues to be one of our most pressing problems, and that raises the question, what's the real issue here? Why can't we hire the people we want? Why can't we keep the people we have? And that brings me to my rock star guest. He is Alan Jagelinzer. Alan is the professor of financial accounting, the head of the accounting faculty subject group, and the director of the Center for Financial Reporting and Accountability at the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge, where he has helped develop leadership, innovation, and change management degree programs for accountants. More to the point, he has some pointed ideas about what's causing our recruitment and retention woes. And and they might not be things you want to hear, but they're things that you have to hear because they're inconvenient truths, to borrow a phrase. You're, you're, and you're going to hear them, too, in detail in just a moment. First, let me tell you that this week's show, I, I, I kind of zoned out there for a second. Let me tell you that this week's show is sponsored by the Business Learning Institute, which delivers competency-based curriculum, courses, content, and community to maximize career trajectories and grow intellectual capital for organizational and executive leadership. Hundreds of courses by dozens of instructors and unlimited customization. Find out how the Business Learning Institute can help you by visiting blionline.org. So, what are these inconvenient truths I spoke about a moment before? Uh, In short, uh, they come down to this. You might be part of the reason why you can't find and keep great talent. And in fact, you might be killing that talent, for lack of a better term. Uh, And okay, that might be just a a tad bit harsh, but here's Alan Jagelinzer's point. And, and he should know because he has worked really closely with these young professionals and he knows exactly what they're going through. The often unforgiving and unrelenting expectations of life in a public accounting firm are taking a huge 
physical and mental toll on the young professionals in our profession. And we're talking about things like depression and anxiety and, yes, even substance abuse. Alan Jagelinzer has seen it all, and it's, it's driving these talented young professionals away from our profession, and it's creating a talent crisis of sorts in the process. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, if we can connect these young professionals to work that's meaningful to them, that serves a purpose greater than making money, that truly makes a difference, they'll stay. It's, it's the old cliched Simon Sinek mantra, right? People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Uh, and that goes for your employees too. So it's, it's time to reconnect with that why, right? Ask yourselves, leaders, why, why do you do what you do? It's, it's often not an easy question to answer, but it's crucial. Uh, it's kind of like that old movie, L.A. Confidential. Remember that great scene with Guy Pierce and, and Kevin Spacey about the reason why they became police officers in the first place? Take a listen. Why in the world do you want to go digging any deeper into the night owl killings, Lieutenant? Rollo Tomasi. Is there more to that, or am I supposed to guess? Rollo was a purse snatcher. My father ran into him off duty. And he shot my father six times and got away clean. No one even knew who he was. I just made the name up to give him some personality. What's your point? Rollo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. It was supposed to be about justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? <laughs> I don't remember. You don't want to be Kevin Spacey there, folks, right? You, you don't want to forget why. You became a CPA in the first place. You want to reconnect with that why so that you can connect your new hires to that why as well. And Alan Jagelinzer has some great suggestions for how we can do that, right? All is not lost here, <laughs> uh, thankfully. If we, can, if we can reconnect our young professionals to their passions and to our why, Heck, we, we run a, a really good chance of catching them and keeping them. And, and that's what this conversation is all about, recruiting new talent by connecting them to your why and retaining them by giving them work that they're passionate about. Those are the silver bullets to the talent problem. And Alan Jagelinzer has just some incredible insights into how we can make those things happen. And when it comes to the future of our organizations and our profession, few things are as important these days. So sit back and listen to some insights about recruitment and retention that I'm betting you haven't heard before. Uh, but that you desperately need to. This is a great conversation about a critically important topic. So without further ado, here is Alan Jagelinzer. Alan, thanks for being here. So, I mean, no secret here. We, we've got a talent issue in this profession. Um, every survey under the sun shows you know, recruitment and retention are, are among the top issues facing public accounting firms. And, and there are scores of theories for 
what's causing this particular issue? What what do you think the actual issue here is when it comes to recruitment and retention of folks um, to public account? So, yeah, there is no one issue. There's several um, from my perspective. And, and, and my background primarily relates to, in this context, what I did in the United States, because the, the UK model is a little bit different, although I think they face similar problems. I think, I think the biggest problem that, that um, if we're talking more about public accounting in this context, I think the biggest problem is they have a hard time articulating the why behind what they do. And I think a lot of the students with whom I worked are very interested in knowing there's a sense of purpose behind it. And, you know, we do some of that in the classroom, but I don't think we do a very good job of it. And I think when they're in the weeds doing these ridiculously long hours, um, everybody loses track of the whole purpose of this. And, and if you will, um, a lot of these, these, these students are, are big on societal impact. Um, many have empathy. Many want to do big causes, environmental causes and things like that. And so understanding that this all has some real societal impact has to be reinforced. Um, I think also that we smother them, we tend to smother them with too many rules. And so there's a lack of creative space in many of these uh, operations. And they're not really allowed, at least from the experience of the students with whom I've worked, um, they're not really allowed that much space to be creative um, and, and to offer innovative ideas on how to do the job better, nor are they shown how to path into the more innovative sides of all the businesses. As, as we all know, um, the entire profession is under change, and we've built our entire master's curriculum here at Cambridge on change and change innovation. Um, and, and the firms tend not to be um, helping them undersee or see the path to the change initiatives around things like climate or, or introducing new technology to audit um, or even going into the policy side of, of the business. And so students tend to, to, to lose sight of what it is they're trying to do. Um, and finally, I think one of the problems with the recruitment is that we, we start recruiting too, too young and before they really understand what we're doing. And I, I, I actually consider that to be predatory. And I think it leads into even mental health issues that I've observed. And I think a lot of it is we, we again, haven't done the, the right job of making sure that the, that the students we're looking at are the ones who really are excited about the impact potential. And so we, we pick on kids who tend to be risk averse. And then, again, we smother them with all these rules. And they, they think that this is their environment of certainty. Uh, and then we throw them into this, this extremely busy environment without giving them any creative space. And, and they suffocate within it. And, I, and that's kind of been my experience with uh, probably hundreds of students I've placed into the profession. Yeah, and, that, and that, that kind of suffocating environment ends up driving them away. That, would that be accurate? Is that, or at least um, That's been my experience. I, I, I could share, you know, countless emails I have from students who are very candid with me who are two to five years in. Many actually, to be fair, many actually really enjoy what they're doing. I ask them why, and they, they focus primarily on the fact that they're good at what they're doing. So it's not really that they're, they care about the impact of what they're doing. It's more that they feel good that they're good at it, mm-hmm. which I find a little bit unfulfilling. And I think that we failed on, we collectively as a, as a, as a society, as, a, as an accounting profession have failed to say, oh, by the way, you know, imagine a world without audit. How, how disastrous would that be for society? We, we fail to color it in the policy perspective. But for as many who, who really enjoy it, I would say I probably have two times as many who tell me that they're not only miserable, um, but I've had students dealing with uh, eating disorders, with drug addiction. I had, to, I had to work a student into drug counseling 
um, and, and, and who took uh, 60 days of leave. I've had students with alcohol issues. I've had students with mental, all kinds of mental health issues. And, it's, and to be fair, it's not unique to accounting profession. I've seen it in banking. I've seen it in some of these other, what I call more traditional paths. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time trying to work with students to identify you know, where we can intersect their, their accounting training, finance training, and move them into paths that they care about, which might be, as I mentioned, environment, social, uh, United Nations policy, things like that. Yeah, you've, you've, you've given me examples in the past of, of what some of those conversations sound like, where you're, you're, you're trying to help these, these young professionals find their why, their purpose, and, and, and steer them toward jobs in this profession that, that would help them fulfill that. Give, give, me, give me a flavor of what some of those conversations sound like. Yeah, so so this comes back to me, if you will, reverse engineering a lot of the students I taught in the MBA program at Stanford. And and if you ever look at the Stanford admissions essay for the MBA program, which is I think the most selective MBA program in the world, um, it says uh, if I if I have the question correctly, it's quote what matters to you most and why. And when you start working with students in that context, these were I mean I had a student who created uh, three airlines, is working on his third airline from scratch. I had students create. Um, major multi-national multi, corpor- corporations and work in um, uh, social entrepreneurship, et cetera. And, and, and most of them really understood who they were and what they cared about. So there's this emotional connection to a sense of purpose. And, 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 and that tends to be lacking. So the one thing that we don't do a very good job of in the U.S. infrastructure, um, and I blame my colleagues for it and our career service offices for it, is we don't ask them, like, what do you really care about? Um, and, and to be clear, it, it, it can be anything, including their, you know, their, their uh, hobbies. So I have an example of a student who, when you open up his Facebook, um, everything he does is running, literally running 50 mile marathons at altitude. And I'm talking 12,000 foot altitudes in Colorado. Wow. And then he's like, Hey, I'm going to go to a big four uh, audit internship. And I'm like, dude, that's just not you. Um, you're going to suffocate there. You need to be outside. And, and, yeah, he really struggled uh, to the point where he said he was having panic attacks going into the office in the morning for his internship in busy season. And so the conversations we've been having are around, you know, working for, um, you know, some outfitter, uh, outdoor outfitters or, or even like the Tough Mudder um, competition, you know, these sort of outdoor adventure type, maybe you could do the accounting and finance for Outward Bound or something like that even Vale Vale Resorts or something where he's outside uh, engaged in, in, in an enterprise that he cares about. One of my students is, uh, I, I think I shared the story with you earlier, but she was big on at-risk youth education, um, didn't really like accounting that much. So even though she was incredibly good at it, so the very short version was we said, well, why don't you go study at-risk youth education at a place where it's extremely acute and we sent her to the most dangerous juvenile detention center in Nashville, Tennessee, where she immersed for almost a month studying that infrastructure. Um, and that parlayed her into Brown University's Master's in Urban Education Policy. Mind you, this came after she did her, her, her master's in accounting with us and had passed her CPA examinations. So when she was interning at Brown, she was appointed by the governor of Rhode Island to rewrite the education funding model for the state of Rhode Island. And now she's done education fund and she emails me. She says, Hey, now I know why you taught me pension accounting because the defined benefit pension plan for the teachers is bankrupting all the funding. And and anyway, she's now doing this for uh, multiple States, most recently Nevada. And she is now planning a a run for state Senator because she realizes 
but she's providing funding uh, recommendations and the people aren't really listening to her. So, so, so now she wants to actually use her business education for policy. And I have students who are now in the United Nations path um, on refugee projects. I have students who are uh, going into criminal and counterterrorism forensics. Uh, one is has interviewed with FBI, for example. So, so there's this entire alternative path space which plays to an emotional connection to, to a, a purpose. Um, and I actually think, just coming back, it's not that I'm down on the, the accounting profession because I think I teach audit, I teach financial reporting. I think it's incredibly important what we do, but I don't think we clarify to our students and the younger generation why this is important and what the world would look like without it. And I think that's our responsibility. And also, I think we have to also help them figure out how to make it better so that we do a, a much better job at it because they have to carry that load pretty quickly. It's, it, it's so fascinating to me that, 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 you know, we've been having this conversation about recruitment and retention for so long, but I've never heard this, this, this wellness aspect of it raised in, in, in such a, a, a way before. It, it, it really fascinates me that there's, a, there's an entire wellness aspect to, the, to this issue that, that hasn't really been talked about before. Um, I, they, they're depressed. I mean, I can't tell you how many of these, and, and in fact, I think the fact that you have this mass turnover is indicative of it. And I think the other symptom is when you're looking around and you have 18 year olds being flown all over the country, wined and dined by these, by these firms. And it's not just accounting. You've got this happening in, in, you know, some in Boulder, we had oil and gas, we had these other enterprises. And to be clear, they're all very good corporations and they all care about their employees. So I'm not saying what they're doing is necessarily wrong. But they're trying, in my mind, they're preying on the insecurity of these kids. Um, when you imagine that these kids walk in with massive amounts of financial uh, student loan debt, and in many cases, their parents just want financial security, well, now we have guaranteed jobs with very good salaries, but the kids aren't emotionally attached to any of it because they don't understand what it's about. And, and so when we're targeting 18-year-olds, I think we have a real problem. And I actually had a conversation with a 19-year-old um, from a very prominent university at one of um, the big four leadership camps. And I said, so how much accounting have you had? She said, I had two classes. I said, do you really understand what you're walking into? She goes, honestly, no. I said, why do you think this company is flying you out at 19? Is that a position of strength or weakness for them? Right. And she just kind of paused and was like, well, actually, it sounds like weakness. Because, and I said, you know, if, if, if they had a healthy recruitment and retention system, where their employees were super excited about their growth opportunities internally, they wouldn't be flying you over there. You'd be begging them to get in. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that in elite institutions, um, and I won't name names just you know, to keep this clean, but there are some institutions that students are heavily competing to gain access to, um, and presumably it's because they tap into the creative and the emotional energy of these students. Um, and so, so this is the kind of thing. So I've seen actual mental health breakdowns in kids um, to extreme acute levels. And, and I, think, I think this is a problem. Um, I think some of that can be cured through, um, you know, some of it is work-life balance stuff that they've talked about. But I don't believe in this notion of work-life balance when you're 20-something. Um, I think that's a fallacy. I think that if you really care about what you're doing, then you enjoy work and you don't necessarily view it as imbalanced. So whenever I hear a 20-something say to me, oh, I want balance, that indicates to me they're not in the right career space. Um, because quite frankly, I can, I'm a workaholic because I love what I do. And it doesn't feel like I'm out of balance. 
my wife might argue that point. But. <laughs> so is this is is that part of the the profession's problem then that we've got this very kind of narrow focus of what it looks like to work in accounting and finance? Well, I think I think people are so busy, and I think people understand the technical requirements, but I think we have a hard time, and this is my colleagues as well in my profession. You know, we forget, like I, I did an entire undergraduate uh, degree in accounting at a very prominent university um, that places literally hundreds of students into the profession year on year and also is one of the biggest feeders into the investment banks. I remember taking an audit class and I walked out and I got an A or A minus in it. And I had absolutely no idea what an audit was about. Hmm. And so I learned the technical stuff, but I didn't understand where it fits in, nor did I understand why do we do audit at all? Like, what's the point of it? And, 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 you know, what happens when audit fails? Like, you know, people over here, we have this massive Karelian scandal and I tell everybody, look, hospitals aren't being built. Um, you can imagine what would happen to a major pharmaceutical company if they went under because of, of financial malfeasance or squandered resources. You know, now we've got people who are relying on drugs, not being able to get their get their medicine so 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 to me to me this notion of audit and reporting is a, is a social good it's it's a policy good and and when i tell students that they go oh i get it now um and so so part of that's our role of communicating why this matters and then part of it is also tapping into the creative energy so i'll give you a quick uh, anecdote i had a student who was fabulous fluent in spanish and spent a lot of time in south america and before she had taken my international accounting course, um, international financial reporting course, I had met a woman who was uh, consulting IFRS transition in Colombia. So she was working in Bogota. She had a small consulting firm and she was taking major Colombian co- uh, companies over from, from Colombia and gapped IFRS. And I said, hey, I got a student. Would you, would you take her as an intern? And she was like, happily. So I had to do a, a crash course in IFRS with this student in an independent study. We sent her down. She was working 60-hour weeks, and she was literally translating IFRS into, uh, uh, f- uh, into Spanish um, and helping these companies transition. The reason I bring this up is I remember meeting a partner from one of the big four who was a super, super person and a very big collaborator with us. And I said, hey, I have this kid now who, who's had this experience. And um, what's fascinating was... He said, wow, that's really cool. And I said, isn't it cool? I said, so how do we, how do we ramp her up so you can utilize that training? And he goes, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know how to onboard her because that it, it, implicitly it was sort of like she's overqualified mm-hmm. um, because she's had this crazy experience. And so now I had to do something creative to help her find work that's meaningful um, because this, the, this system doesn't know what to do with that, that talent in that creative space. And so I think the profession needs to think about how do we, how do we tap into the creative energy of some of these kids? How do we fast track a kid or how do we pre-commit in some ways, or at least show a path to, Hey, I know you care about environment. Let's, let's spin you up on audit or whatever tax or something. And then we're going to move you over. Here's your path over into environmental consulting, or even better, we're going to allow you to grow the whole project. We're going to help you. We're going to allow you to build the team to, to test the waters and create all this infrastructure and be sort of the entrepreneur within our space, you know, cause honestly these kids are leaving. So if you don't tap into their energy, they're leaving you. Um, so why not allow them some, some space and maybe, maybe basically do some venture capital with them. You know, it, it, these firms have a lot of opportunity here to maybe help guide the ventures and allow them to be project management. 
on, on some of these growth areas. And we have many growth areas in accounting. So that's just kind of my view. And maybe it's easier said than done, but that's sort of what I would do. Well, yeah. So, um, I, I mean, have you, how optimistic are you that that, that type of, of shift will start to happen? Are you starting to see some firms take um, that direction? Or? Um, I, there's a little bit of that here in England, but I don't know how much. And, you know, we're having high levels. So, so, the, so this Cambridge program that we're building is sort of the, is, is, is to develop those people who are going to move. So we take experienced accounting and finance people and we kind of elevate them into decision roles and into innovation roles. And so we partnered with some of the senior leaders at major firms and CFOs at major corporations and all that who, who come in with their ideas on, on, on well, we're, we honestly don't know what to do in this space. So we've had conversations from senior leaders like, hey, we're not exactly sure how to innovate audit or we're not exactly sure you know, what we're going to do with blockchain or we're not exactly sure how we're going to handle this, these environmental KPIs, um, things like that. And so, so trying to get that dialogue in and get our students involved. So our students are involved in that kind of thinking. I think this conversation probably needs to go into the HR teams at, at, at the U.S. accounting firms. Mm-hmm. But I honestly don't know. I haven't had the conversations yet with them to figure out where they are. I think... I don't know. I don't know how big of an infrastructure they're having, but I do think that as they start realizing that they need different skill sets, the one conversation we have had is the profession knows it needs different skill sets. For example, they're already paying attention to data and people who are capable of coding data and processing data and and interpreting data. And that's probably a little bit of a different skill set than what we've typically recruited on. And it may even be that we need to alter our recruitment over to computer scientists and not accountants you know, things like that. So I think as we start moving down the space of, okay, well, what else do we need? What kind of design thinking do we need? You know, maybe we need environmental scientists who we need to bring on board and and get them some fluency in accounting. Then I think we're going to start having this dialogue of, of then how do we retain these people? Because quite frankly, I don't know of too many environmental scientists who are like, oh, hey, I want to go work for an accounting firm. Right, right, right. A lot of opportunities, though, uh, for firms that, that learn how to do this right. Yeah, no, I think so. I, I think so. I think it takes some creative thinking. Um, I had a conversation, and, and I guess I probably won't say with whom, but one of, one of my senior advisors yesterday actually brought up a conversation I hadn't even thought of before with respect to their recruitment practice and, and mentioned that, that they're getting neuropsychologists involved because some of the types of people they're interested in recruiting um, including those who are on the spectrum of uh, autism, because um, a lot of the quantitative stuff might actually fit well within that spectrum. And I'm like, holy crap, I hadn't even thought of that as an idea. I mean, you know, I haven't even thought about the ethics of that. But, right. but, but, but the idea that they were talking about was their HR team needs to really think carefully about how, how they can help these people flourish um, and, and, and support all the infrastructure to... to to, to make that work for everybody and make everybody healthy in that environment. And so these are the kinds of discussions where I could see some play with, you know, in my mind, you're dealing with organizational psychologists coming in probably to help color and, and also doing even an inventory of, of, you know, what do you need more than just professional promotion opportunities? I think it's more of a creative space too. Yeah. And, and not to take this conversation into a, an entirely new direction here. I guess we could talk sure. about it forever, but, but 
but not on the academic side. I mean, what, what needs to happen at, at the university level to address some of these, these issues? Um, yeah, so that's an interesting question, and, and I've, I've struggled with that. So we're starting to, you know, you, you see this proliferation in the United States, um, particularly with the data analytics piece. And I think people are obviously clued in that data has to be part of the process. And, and one of the big four is leading a lot of that initiative from what I've seen. Um, I think some of the others are starting to work with their own data um, internally. So I think they, they have different approaches to how they're working that. And we here at Cambridge have a very different approach as well, because I want people who can challenge the data infrastructure and and don't just take what the computer scientists have provided them as given and actually challenge it and deconstruct it and find all the flaws in the system and, and recreate it and, um, and and work through the assumptions. But I, I, we have a we have a bit of a problem because the the curriculum is packed and, and it, it kind of has to be so so there's sort of a base layer of of knowledge one has to be able to get through of technical expertise in order to even have the higher level discussions mm-hmm. and so we're sort of in this model where most programs are five years or they're you know they're they're capping off with masters many of them some of them are doing joint projects to get to the 150 hours, et cetera, and particularly in the U.S. And, you know, by that point, people sort of pass their examinations, they're busy in work, and and, and they kind of want to get started. And plus, a lot of the students do enjoy their internships or at least enjoy sort of this different way of thinking in the internships. And now they're moving into the the real-time learning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there has to be a place where we re-engage them. And, and start then working on so, some of the creative uh, stuff, which is why we came in with our, pro- with our program to do part-time in residence and, and pick it up after they've been working for a little while. Because even when I started working on some of the policy-oriented thinking, with, I did it with fifth-year master's students who had already gone through all the technical training so that I could basically go into a lot more depth about what's wrong with the way they've been trained. In other words, you know, why is it not okay? Or or let me say differently, why do the accounting standards, why are they stupid? Um, (laughs) Is there a better way to do it? Um, Are we doing the right kind of reporting? But, 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 but in order to have that conversation, you really have to have a foundation. So I'm struggling with how to modify the existing infrastructure when it seems as though it has to be at least that deep to get where we need to go. Um, You know, and so, so it's really difficult because a lot of what we need, you know, talking, for example, here in the UK, they have a very different model where they actually don't train at universities. Typically they hire from theology and, and geology and, you know, pretty much any major and they'll take smart students, much like the investment banks tend to do in the U S and then they'll in-house train them. And there's something to be said about that because they come in with different skill sets and, and, and often the recruiters here have talked to the soft skills that, you know, in the U S one of the problems with our model is we tend to select a lot of risk averse kids. I mean, I can't tell you how risk averse they are mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much certainty and structure. They love the structure and they thrive on the structure and they hate meandering out of that structure on average. So there has to be a system by which we introduce a lot more complexity, a lot more ambiguity and get them super comfortable with that gray area. Everything is gray. Everything's an estimate. 
and they have to justify it. And there's legal risk around it. And there's reputational risk around it, things like that. So somehow we have to introduce that kind of thinking into the classroom and use real world examples. But, but, the, but the syllabus is packed and it kind of has to be packed. So it's, it's a challenge. I, I, I wonder whether the right model is this get your degree, get some experience, and then explore a top-up, like a leadership top-up later or, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, whether we need to introduce something completely different in the, in the undergraduate syllabus. Right. Um, I'll close on this. I suspect that at, at some point, if we do major transition um, soon, then we can probably relax a little bit on some of the technical details, perhaps around audit practice and move more data into that or move more blockchain or something in there, which is sort of a more aligned with what they're going to be doing. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's certainly, certainly an issue without any easy solutions. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard without saying, Oh, you gotta go. I mean, you know, the soon, as soon as we say, Hey, it's a six year program, forget about it. Nobody wants to do that. Yeah. Um, if you were, if you were like a managing partner at a firm, how would you communicate the why behind what you do? I mean, you alluded to it earlier, but what is the why of this profession? Um, you know, there's certain levels of why. I mean, the easiest one for them is to say, look, you know, we have, I mean, the easiest one that actually will resonate with, with the kids is look, we have, um, reputation risk and, you know, we have a professional ethics code, et cetera. Um, and so we have to do good work here because, you know, our reputation is there, but more importantly, I mean, you know, it helps when you think in terms of, you know, we always talk about stakeholders and stakeholder money at risk. Um, and that's a particularly easy way to show all these horror stories of, you know, who lost money in Enron, for example, but I think it's easier and, and particularly client specific. I tend to use Novartis as an example when I teach any audience, because what I like is in their 2014 cover of their annual report, they have a, a patient and a nurse on the cover. And then if you open up the the text inside, they have a blurb about how at that time they were working on a uh, Ebola vaccine. And to be fair, I have no idea whether that Ebola technology was viable, nor do I know whether it was better than other pharmaceuticals. Right. But the idea at the time was we had a mass um, potential pandemic, global pandemic, and fears about Ebola. And, and what I'm trying to communicate to these students is, look, if, for example, Novartis had some internal issue, and it could be, it could be accidental where they misused resources or they accidentally squandered resources or you know, they had some research line that didn't work, if they're in financial difficulty, then this Ebola vaccine that the world might need doesn't get produced. And that's a societal issue. Or again, you've got patients who are relying on some drug technology for life-sustaining um, health. It's more than just, oh, hey, you've got shareholders and employees at risk with their financial position. And so, so I think that's important. And to say, look, we're the last line of defense in some regard. The, the community at large is counting on us um, to make sure that we communicate cleanly about the financial risks with this enterprise and its, its viability. And, and I take that, I personally take that very seriously. I also think without going too deep into politics, you can also play into some of what we observe in governments right now about the dangers of opacity um, all around the world. We have governmental initiatives to hide money, to hide deals, um, things like that. And, you know, that's dangerous for society. And it's not too hard to, to say, to, to, to articulate why. 
Um, and then you've got all this misinformation stuff floating around in, in, in journalistic space and in, in social media. And, and, and those are extremely dangerous. So, so credibility of information, particularly around enterprises that society relies on, like Carillion, like Novartis, like, is critical. And I think as a partner, I'd say, look, you know, society is relying on us communicating or helping to communicate the viability of this enterprise. So let's do this well and let's be as honest as we can. I think that resonates very strongly with the 20-somethings of today. I really do. Particularly particularly when it's around an initiative they care about too, such as, um, you know, if they're doing attestation on, on environmental impact, they care a lot about that, at least the ones I worked with. Yeah. So we, we've spent a good deal of time here talking about, you know, the importance of, of young professionals being able to you know, find their way within this profession to find their passion. Well, how did you do, how did you do that? how did you find your way in this profession? Oh, it was meandering. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I have a kind of a weird story because I was also an Air Force pilot for 10 years. So for me, it was, you know, I just, I, again, I keep going back. So my favorite question was why? I, I always ask why. Always. I'm always asking why. I'm always going, why are we doing it like this? Why is this this way? What's the whole purpose of this? Um, I think it's because I'm extremely impatient and I hate wasting my time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always kind of trying to figure out what I enjoy doing. And then I invest, I find myself becoming absorbed in what I care about. The light really came on at Stanford when I saw the ridiculously brilliant ideas that my students there were investing in their time more than their money. And it was just fabulous to watch. And the core thread was that they understood why behind what they were doing. And, and they understood that there was this fundamental need and, and they just were there to do it. And, and I also saw that it's so much easier to invest time and energy into a project you care about particularly when things get full of friction, if you care about it, you'll see it through and it'll actually happen as opposed to something you don't care about. So I don't know. It just, for me, it was just paying attention to kind of what I like to do. And, and, I, and I found this way and I started realizing too, that I, that this profession allows me to, if you will, I, I, let me step back. So we talked a little bit about the mental health stuff. I actually see, and, and, I've, and I've heard this with a lot of my co- colleagues you know, we host office hours when I was in, in Boulder, and it's not unique to Colorado. It, it, I think it's every 20-something institution. Students come in asking for homework help, and they start becoming, if you allow them to, somewhat counseling sessions. A lot of these students are, are struggling with all kinds of social pressure issues, financial issues, expect- societal expectation issues. And, and they use us as a sounding board. And, and, and to some degree or another, we can either choose to engage that or not. And there have been many times when I said, you know, look, I, I'm not qualified to have this talk, but I, I, I think I know who could help you. And we would push them over to the mental health counselors and stuff like that at the universities. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about it is I started noticing that they, they have these sort of internal dialogues about what they want to be. And I realized that, that, that this is something that that I'm good at is helping them find out what they care about and helping them bridge over to these types of careers. And I start finding that they're making much, much bigger impact um, when they intersect this passion with their skills. Cause you know, every single institution we walk into runs on a finance and accounting engine. So literally any institution is open for work in with our skills. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really great way of looking at it. Um, including, I, I want to add, including those that don't yet exist. And that's something. Oh, yeah. and, and more and more of those are going to be coming too. I mean, it's, yep. it's, it's uh, I think it was 
uh, World Economic Forum came out with their their Future of Jobs report or something like that, and they you know they made the point that yeah, new technologies are going to destroy certain occupations. They're also going to be creating yeah twice as many jobs as they destroy. So I mean, there's there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity to to make your mark in, in in some really impactful ways in this profession. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. So, and, you know, just trying to free these kids up to think more broadly because this is so safe. They're so safe. There's so much safety into, you know, there's so much money floating around to recruit these kids. And, and you know, oh, it's a great place to start. And, and for many it is, but not all. And, and I don't know, there just seems to be like a lack of care in this infrastructure and, and a lack of sort of support for how we bridge them. And, and we're losing... Uh, we're losing talent. We're losing impact. I remember reading an article from Yale. There were a bunch of Yale students who were in the MBA program and I think the law school. And they were, they were surprised that all the, they interviewed all these Yale students coming in and they all had all these emotional charges. Um, uh, I'm going to go change this. I'm going to go change that social, um, environmental, you know, they're going to go be impact leaders. And every single one of them were going to investment banks. At the end of their at the end of their journey, and somebody was like, you know, think of all the innovation in society that's not happening because these kids are going chasing the money. Right. Um, and and again, I want to make it clear, I am not anti investment banks. I think they play an incredibly important role. It's just it's just interesting that you know we we kind of funnel them in, and they have this desperate need for for certainty around their financials, um, and so they 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 lose their creativity on our path. That's just what I'm <coughs> observing. Yeah, we need to find a way to, to channel that somehow. How optimistic are you that, that we'll be able to do that? I mean, what, what does the future of this profession look like to you? So the, I think the future of the... So I actually think we're going to be able to do this because um, we're in a situation where we're, we're going to be forced to. And even talking... I, I talked to some members of the International Accounting Standards Board. The other night, we actually had a dinner. And privately, they were talking a little bit about some of the changes that they anticipate. And, and they said that some of the easiest changes come because of environmental shifts that sort of require them. And, you know, for example, they mentioned the, the bank crisis was obviously a tragic event, but it, but it helped facilitate a discussion around, you know, a change in reporting around expected losses. And, and I think we're kind of in that environment now where the environment is shifting and it's kind of forcing this introspection as a, as a community um, which then allows for some creative space. And so I'm actually quite optimistic. I think the infrastructures we have are slow. I think people have been raised in an environment that's sort of static and there's been, you know, this this ladder of expectation upon them. But I do think there's this um, creative energy and I see it with some of the cherry pick partners with whom we operate in our program. You know, we happen to be working with some of the innovation leaders at, at these firms and you hear it in them. They're super excited. I mean, and every question they bring into the classroom is gray. I mean, they're all talking about, Hey, what do we do with this? I don't know, but it's exciting. Mm-hmm. So at least in that space, it exists and people are having the right kinds of questions and the dialogue's happening and everybody sees the opportunities. And, and what I, what I find refreshing as well is they not only see the opportunities, there's a, tremendous amount of financial wealth that can be tapped in developing all this infrastructure in all these spaces like environmental. You know, we, we posted a big conference on environmental reporting and attestation. There's a lot of value. And it's just as environment. It's like social, the ESG stuff. I mean, all these KPIs and all measurement attestation, that's all growth. There's probably a, a, a lot of financial value here. 
Um, and we certainly know investors care a lot about understanding and getting more clarity on these. So that's a growth space. It's a super great growth space. But not only are they excited about the financial opportunities, they're excited about the social welfare opportunities. And that to me is the key. Um, and that's why I have hope because everybody realizes that if we can do that right, we actually can potentially help society. And so I'm excited from that dimension. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, Alan, thank you for the time and the insights. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thanks for the time. That was Alan Jagelinzer, professor of financial accounting. He's the head of the accounting faculty subject group and the director of the Center for Financial Reporting and Accountability at the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. You can learn more at jbs.cam.ac.uk. Uh, Alan also has sent us uh, some links to a number of articles that take a closer look at the physical and mental well-being of accounting and finance pros. Those articles include one from World Finance titled Mental Health Issues Are Becoming More Prevalent in the Financial Services Sector. There's one from Economia titled Third of Accountants Suffer from Poor Mental Health. Pretty remarkable statistic there. And one from Bloomberg Tax titled UK Accountants in Mental Health Crisis from Work Stress. Fascinating reading, each one of them. Uh, You'll find links to those articles and more on our blog at blionline.org. That's blionline.org slash blog. Look for the post about episode 74 with Alan Jagelinzer. And if you liked what you heard here, stroll on over to Apple Podcasts, why don't you, and subscribe to Future Proof with Bill Sheridan. Or if you're not an Apple fan, you'll you'll find us on Spotify and Google Play and Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, you'll find us there. And don't forget to, to leave a rating and review while you're there. We'd love to hear what you think. And don't forget, this week's sponsor is the Business Learning Institute. The BLI's Future Ready Learning Framework outlines the skills that CPAs need to thrive in the rapidly changing world of accounting and finance. That framework is all about gaining and maintaining deep technical knowledge along with a strategic skill set. And we're talking about strategic aptitudes that have been identified as most crucial for tomorrow's CPAs. Start mastering these future ready skills now by visiting macpa.org slash future dash learning. That is all I've got for you, gang. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again next week.